Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moyle Lady McLean, and today is my birthday. And to join me to celebrate, we've got the wonderful Sean Fay. Sean, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Happy birthday. What a way to celebrate it. <laughs> <laughs> I truly would not want to be doing anything else. Plus, an extra special birthday gift. There has been a rail strike today, and that means later we'll be showing you Mick Lynch doing what he normally does to the British media. So stay tuned in for that. Now for our first story. After months of strike action by NHS staff, an end could be in sight. A fresh pay offer that would cover ambulance workers and nurses has been extended. Health Secretary Steve Barclay confirmed a deal had been reached earlier today. The government's made a formal offer to the NHS Staff Council that I've just come out of a meeting with them. I'm very pleased that they've agreed to recommend to their members. It will be for a 5% pay rise next year, 2023-24, but also an additional lump sum in terms of this year, which is additional to the award through the pay review body, which was on average 4.75%. Uh, and then what that will mean, for example, for a newly qualified nurse is over 1,800s this year on top of that PRB uh, award uh, and a pay rise of over £1,300 next year. And obviously that increases for more senior nurses in higher grades. So just to recap, this deal would increase wages by 5% and it also includes a one-off bonus payment worth between £1,655 and £3,789. That's all for this financial year. But it's important to note that this offer does not cover striking junior doctors who are repped by the British Medical Associations. Now, the government and the NHS Staff Council, which includes the unions, announced the offer with a joint statement. This part in particular seemed to suggest agreement on the deal. Both sides believe the offer represents a fair and reasonable settlement that acknowledges the dedication of NHS staff while acknowledging the wider economic pressures currently facing the UK. GMB said they were suspending planned walkouts by ambulance staff next week as they consult members. Both they, Unison and RCN, are recommending members accept the new pay offer. RCN General Secretary Pat Cullen said this. The government was forced into these negotiations and to reopen the pay award as a result of the historic pressure from nursing staff. Members took the hardest of decisions to go on strike and I believe they have been vindicated today. As well as the additional money now, we have made real progress with the government on safe staffing measures, a new pay structure for nursing, support for newly qualified staff and pensions too. It is not a panacea, but it is real, tangible progress. And the RCN's member leaders are asking fellow nursing staff to support what our negotiations have secured. Sounds pretty convinced. But the Union Unite has outright said they can't recommend their members vote for the deal. General Secretary Sharon Grahan had this to say earlier. The offer from UK is not one Unite can recommend to our members, but ultimately it is important that our members make the final decision. Unite will support members in whichever decision they now make. As Unite members are being consulted, strike action will be paused. This poses questions. The health unions had been negotiating as a bargaining union. But if Unite, who represent a smaller number of NHS workers than other unions, decide to strike out on their own in rejecting this offer, will that break up the block? Also, worth remembering, the government's offer falls 
far short of initial asks by unions like the Royal College of Nursing. Unison and GMB wanted a pay offer to match retail price inflation, which was 13.4% in January. Ouch. And the RCN wanted a pay rise for members that was 5% above RPI. If you take those January figures, that would be about 19%. But inflation is now predicted to fall to 2.9% by the end of the year. So thinking about that, this 5% and bonus payout could actually match it. Well, to discuss all this, joining me now is Nurse and Unite organiser Dave Carr. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, your union, Unite, have said they will not recommend the deal to members. What do you make of it? Sharon was very careful saying that they can't recommend it. They haven't recommended rejecting it either. Um, What I will say is this is a shit bill. I think we have to be absolutely crystal clear on this. This is way below the expectations of all NHS staff and all nursing staff. Um, And it equates the um, the 5% pay rise equates in real terms to a, to it, it, it leaves us £4,400 a year worse off than in 2008. So it hasn't addressed, you know, the pay restoration that has been at heart of the RCN campaign. And the, and the lump sum, the non-consolidated bonus is effectively a bribe. Um, and we will be left worse off in 2023-24 than we were in this past financial year. So it's a really poor um, pay pay offer. I'm really really disappointed that the RCN uh, recommended uh, accepting this and the GMB and Unison. I can tell you now that my phone is red hot with messages from RCN groups and other groups, uh, Unite groups and other groups of combined health workers that are just horrified that this this um, deal has been um, uh, uh, recommended for acceptance by their unions, and of course, what there will be a big is a big campaign to reject that now, and that does pose the question um, that, that, that needs an answer that you originally said about what do Unite do, and I think that what we have to what we have to do first is get this um, really shoddy pay offer rejected. Um, it does not address. That the major issues of pay inside the NHS. It does not address the, you know, the the, the inability to retain nurses that leaves us forty seven thousand nurses um, short in 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 England's NHS. It doesn't address the problems um, of the twenty three thousand excess deaths we've seen in the NHS in the last year um, because people can't get access to and you know to to any um to, to ambulances or A&Es on time because of a lack of staff because of a lack of resources it does not address the fundamental problems facing the NHS at the moment and that's why we're so disappointed that our union leadership um most of them have accepted this deal how likely is it that a rejection of this deal will come from members both within Unite and also RCN and GB, GMB. Um, and if that happens, what's going to occur with leadership? Because they'll have lost the legitimacy in recommending it in the first place. Absolutely right. I mean, I think this is, you know, maybe career defining for people like Pat Cullen um, because she's recommended we accept this deal. Um, and if it's rejected, it's obviously a rejection of the authority that she has to actually to, 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 to run the RCN and run this this campaign. I think I think that's a major problem for the unions. But when unions recommend um, pay deals or recommend acceptance of deals, what that usually um, um, signposts to membership is that the union doesn't think it can get any get any more. I think 
what's clear is this probably is the best deal that the unions could get from negotiations. But I think what's absolutely abundantly clear is it's not good enough to address you know, the crisis in our pockets and the crisis in the NHS because of short staffing. It is just not good enough and it does need to be rejected. And that does pose questions that if this deal is rejected by nursing staff and other health workers, where do we go from there? And, I, and I'd say this, I'd say we should combine with the um, BMA, we should combine the strikes and we should escalate as quickly as possible. The flip side of that, let's say, you know, the GMB, RCN end up, the members do end up voting for this deal and Unite don't. What happens then to the block that has existed in negotiations thus far? I think we need to be clear that that block um, was all over the place in certain respects. I mean, the RCN went in on their own initially um, and the other unions joined um, latterly and obviously the BMA are out striking um, on their own. I think that we as health workers, you know, the people that are actually delivering the service or trying to deliver the service at the moment, have to learn a hard lesson from this, which is we have to live with the deals that are made by our leaderships. And this is a poor deal. And we have to combine across unions, across sectors inside the NHS and reject this deal and then combine to fight for a better deal. I think we can get a much better deal. Um, I think we're dealing with a weak government here that doesn't um, look at the fact that, you know, we've got massive inequalities of wealth. And they don't look to to tax in some of that wealth, to tax in some of the billions that have been you know taken away from ordinary people in this country. We need to actually address the issue of where the money's coming from. And there's been no talk of new money um, in this deal now. So I wonder where the money's coming from to pay for this deal. Is it coming out of services that we're already providing? But it's just not good enough. It is absolutely not good enough. We're in crisis. You've seen the mess the NHS is in. I mean, I've worked in the NHS for 40 years. I have never known it like this. You've heard our junior doctors speaking with passion about how they cannot deliver the job and how the service is failing. And I think people need to realise that, you know, this deal will not address those major issues. It will not address those major issues that are, that are leading to a failure in our health service. And um, we've got to reject it. You know, if we don't reject it, I, I, I really fear the exodus of nurses out of, out, of the, um, out of the industry, you know, for better wages elsewhere and in private healthcare. Yeah, I want to get on to talking about where this funding for this deal might come from in a second. But first of all, from your perspective, what has gone wrong in this negotiating process on the union side if they're dealing with this weak government, as you say? Well, for the first for the first incidents, they were invited into talks, invited into talks with preconditions. And the preconditions, I've seen the preconditions, although, you know, my union in Unite says, no, we didn't accept those preconditions. The preconditions were, you know, any deal that we get out of this, you have to recommend. There is no new money. It will be partly part of it will be a non-consolidated lump sum payment for um, 2022-23. Um, and, you know, that was the preconditions. To take, you know, to take your foot off the accelerator, to, you know, at a time when you really needed to apply that pressure to the accelerator, we should we should have said, like the BMA have said, unless you make an offer, we're not calling off these strikes and escalated the strikes. And I think this dispute would have been over and done with, and we'd be, you know, probably looking at a much healthier um, pay dispute and a future for the NHS. I cannot fathom why they walked into these talks. Um, without, you know, with those preconditions and without a firm offer on the table. They stood us down at a point when they should have been mobilising more of us to take strike action. 
And this new pay deal, it's likely to be funded from the NHS budget. Yesterday, we saw um, Jeremy Hunt outline a budget. There was no new funding there for any sort of pay increase. Steve Barclay, the health secretary, has said that this money won't come out of patient-facing areas, which is quite a slick bit of spin, in my opinion. But what impact might this have if this new pay deal is drawn from the existing NHS budget? Well, it's already in chaos. I mean, the NHS is in chaos. I mean, our ability to deliver core services safely has been compromised. And everyone has seen that. If you turn on the TV for the last couple of years, and especially over this winter, you can see the NHS is failing. Everyone that has any connection with the NHS now knows it's not working. Anyone that's, um, you know, needs to see their GP, has operations cancelled because there aren't the staff, um, you know, sees the massive vacancies inside the NHS and experiences the weights in the A&E that lead to deaths, know that the NHS isn't working. When they talk about patient facing, what are they talking? Well, let's cut some cleaners. Let's cut some admin staff. You know, they talk about getting rid of managers. You know, we need managers to actually run our services properly. They really, do, you know, they really are a poor scapegoat. I mean, there are billions that are wasted, uh, you know, lying in the pockets of private companies. And actually look at the, um, you know, the PPE contracts that were wasted by previous incompetent um, health secretaries. Um, I, I think we've the, the, the British public need to be absolutely crystal clear. If they take any more money out of the NHS, if they try to make efficiencies or savings from anywhere, it will further accelerate the collapse in the health service. And you know, and I know, and anyone with eyes knows that we are in a, a period where the NHS is failing increasingly on its core services. And that is directly because of 13 years of Tory rule and the fact that they have not dealt um, with below inflation pay rises for, for their course for their core staff during that period. I mean, it really is a shocker. I mean, I, personally, I'm really upset that we've been outmaneuvered by someone as incompetent as uh, Steve Barclay. Dave Carr, thank you so much for your insight and joining me today. And enjoy the rest of your birthday day. See ya. <laughs> How could I not? For our next story. The day after a budget is when the Chancellor tours TV studios to defend the announcement and is also when the Shadow Chancellor tours them to attack the plans and when think tanks full of wonks publish their verdicts. So let's start with Jeremy Hunt. He's under fire for making pension tax changes which will only benefit the richest 1%. As you can see here, that's the angle The Guardian went with today. And on BBC Breakfast, Hunt was challenged on the move. Criticisms around yesterday's announcement. So the cap on tax paid being removed for those who have more than a million pounds, a million pounds in their pension pot and the ability to save more annually. That's helpful, but it's helpful for the wealthiest 1% in the country. No, um, this is a change that is primarily driven because we have a big issue in the NHS which is doctors reducing their hours or retiring early just at the time the NHS needs them the most. The Royal College of Surgeons say that 69% of their members have reduced their hours because of the way the pension system works. And uh, we have a backlog of 7 million people in the NHS. By the way, this is a policy that Labour supported only in September. Their health spokesman said the cap was crazy and it would save lives to get rid of it. He was right when he said that. We have acted. This is something that will take effect in two weeks' time. It will help the NHS at a moment when it most needs that support. Well, what does Jeremy Hunt know about supporting the NHS? 
As you can imagine, Labour aren't convinced that this tax break for the wealthy is the only way we could help build capacity in the NHS. This was Rachel Reeves. Family incomes are going to fall by 6% over the next couple of years. And yet the only permanent tax change that the Chancellor announced yesterday was to help the top 1% of people save even more into their pensions. Now, we know there's a problem around doctors, so let's fix the problem for doctors. But this billion pound or more giveaway is the wrong priority when ordinary people are facing a cost of living crisis. That's why we're going to force a vote on this in the House of Commons on Tuesday and encourage Conservative MPs to vote for their constituents who are struggling with a cost of living crisis rather than voting for a tax cut for people who can already save a million pounds or more into a pension. And an incoming Labour government would look to uh, uh, reverse these changes because I don't think it's right that an unlimited amount of money can be saved into pensions with a government with a taxpayer subsidy for it. Tax relief on pension pots may seem all rather technical. Some of the other key decisions made in the budget are less so. This was the analysis of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. There was some extra cash to shore up the defence budget alongside the extra cash for childcare. And surprise, surprise, he found $6 billion to freeze fuel duties and maintain the supposedly temporary 5p a litre cut announced last year, despite a fall of around 40p a litre in the price of petrol over the last year. Yet, we're supposed to believe, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that the 5p cut will be reversed next year. Forgive me if I harbour some doubts. Just as notable was what Mr Hunt didn't announce. There was no funding to be found to improve the pay offer to striking public sector workers, where £6 billion might have been enough to make an inflation-matching pay offer possible this coming year. That's a political choice. Money for motorists, but not for nurses, doctors and teachers. That was Paul Johnson of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Now, the IFS is certainly not a left-wing outfit in the vein of Navarra Media, so that judgment is all the more striking. And there's another worrying element of the budget highlighted by the IFS. This is the write-up from The Guardian. The Institute for Fiscal Studies said up to 1 million people currently on incapacity benefits could lose about £350 a month as a result of dropping the Work Capability Assessment, WCA, which assesses capacity for work and using the Personal Independence Payment, PIP, test which only measures the extra living costs of disability. It said the logic of the plan meant that those who had conditions that prevented them working, such as people with short-term or fluctuating illnesses, but who did not claim PIP or incur major additional living costs, would no longer receive extra support. PIP tests are widely distrusted and currently take 14 weeks to process. There are also widespread concerns about Hunt's stated intention to apply the sanctions for universal credit claimants, quote, more rigorously and to implement a, quote, more intensive conditionality regime. We should note, though, anyone in these benefits should be reassured that these plans are not due to be put in place until well after the next general election. So hopefully Labour will have a change of heart. Sean, what happens when people who can't work are forced to? Not only can you not force people back into work, but when you adopt co- coercive mes- you know, methods to try and get people back into work, it pretty much involves some kind of humiliation or degradation of those people. That is something that disabled people have seen for the past 13 years. 
If anyone watching hasn't seen it, I'd really recommend the film I, Daniel Blake by Ken Loach, written by um, Paul Laverty, which is a sort of fictionalized depiction of what has been happening for people who have been trying to claim uh, sickness benefit as part of their universal credit in the past um, 13 years. That film anchors on the work capability assessment, um, which was scrapped yesterday. That's been universally welcomed because for many disabled people, it was a deeply degrading experience where they felt they weren't believed. There were assessors who didn't, you know, hadn't heard of certain disabilities or conditions. Um, so that is to be welcomed. But certainly, I think, as you just mentioned, there are uh, certain issues with having everything rely on the PIP assessment which is actually a different kind of assessment. The other thing I think it's worth saying about this discussion is that one of the things about um, a, a sort of total approach, which assumes that it sort of wins headlines by saying we're going to help disabled people back into work, is that disabled people um, uh, are not a homogenous group. Uh, the charity Mind, for example, said yesterday that people who are not able to work because of mental health conditions won't be helped, particularly by this budget. If you're thinking about someone with a learning disability, that can be very different to someone with a long-term mental health condition. It can be very different to people with short or, or um, fluctuating illnesses or people with long COVID autoimmune diseases. You know, there, there is a huge spectrum here. And what people want is dignity. And for some people that will involve assist, you know, an assist to return back to work. But for others, that will mean that we actually support them in the fact that they can't work. And also we have to recognize that uh, when we talk about getting people back to work, the kind of work, the rights and protections that work affords, the dignity that work, affo that work affords, that's all stuff that I don't think this government's interested in and this budget doesn't address. This is probably not going to happen because Labour are likely to win the next general election. They might reverse this. We don't know. They might be as punitive. Keir Starmer's all up in the air. But if this doesn't happen, what is the point of this rhetoric that the Tories are peddling, um, as you've pointed out, as amongst the most vulnerable in our society and reducing the dignity that is afforded to these demographics. What is the overall point of promising something that they will never deliver that is so punitive? Well, I think it's just the fact that, you know, I think what we are seeing now is an ailing government desperate to grasp at anything that um, that seems remotely reactionary that can, can point to various scapegoats. And of course, we know migrants, trans people, um, people of colour generally, Muslims, have all been beloved state scapegoats, as have been not disabled people, but work-shy people, which is uh, this kind of constructed idea that uh, there are loads of people that are essentially falsifying um, claims to benefit. And of course, the effect of that is to demonise and to scapegoat and to um, dehumanise disabled people in reality by the practice of sanctions, benefit controls, coercion, etc. And after that, on to our next story. Do you remember the UK's botched evacuation process after Afghanistan fell to the Taliban in August 2021? Chaotic scenes unfolded in Kabul as people scrambled to leave over the course of just a few days. And thousands of Afghans who had been promised sanctuary were left behind amid a, quote, total absence of planning for the withdrawal. A damning 2022 report by the UK's Foreign Affairs Select Committee found that the operation had been, quote, a disaster and that a catalogue of errors and mismanagement had, quote, cost many people the chance to leave Afghanistan putting lives in danger. 
Now, all this context makes the BBC's latest scoop rather a bemusing one. A Newsnight investigation has revealed some women who were evacuated from Afghanistan as part of the national football team may not have actually been elite footballers. Okay. According to the BBC, 35 footballers and their relatives were evacuated from Afghanistan because of their places on the national women's team. Women footballers were thought to be particularly at risk from Taliban reprisals for participating in the sport. And the Home Office championed a scheme that was intended to give elite footballers safe passage to the UK. But the Newsnight expose has found up to 13 of these women may have used false credentials of their footballing prowess to guarantee their escape. The BBC reports this. Newsnight has had access to the list of evacuees that was submitted to the British authorities in order to obtain entry to the UK. While the names and other identity details are genuine, the description of the principal applicants as national players or members of a regional team in some cases appears to be false. The BBC spoke to a number of former Afghan players, coaches and officials who identified 13 individuals who they believed were not members of the team listed. Many of the evacuees were described as members of the Herat youth team, but Newsnight tracked down the team's former coach who now works in women's football in Italy. He says that when he saw the list of people who were evacuated, he wondered if some of them had ever visited the Herat football ground, let alone played for the national team. Quote, I have seen people in the list who have not even worn a football strip in Herat. The story is being framed by the BBC as a scandal because top-flight players who were not evacuated to the cha- during the chaos are upset. More here from BBC News. There is resentment among genuine players now living under Taliban rule in Afghanistan that others appear to have got out with false credentials. One who wishes to remain anonymous tells Newsnight, quote, The Taliban have banned sports for women and girls. We are left behind in Afghanistan with no future. It just makes me feel very neglected and very sad because we are the real players and not some of those who got evacuated. Now, it's understandable to me that some of those who have failed during the evacuation process may be feeling desperate and aggrieved. But this overall is a very strange angle for the BBC to take. Firstly, the tone and reporting seems to blame the individual women for their efforts to escape, such as this part of the story. We tried to put the allegation to those football players who our sources claimed were not genuine, but only three responded. They all insisted they were footballers, although two of the women said they had never claimed to be national players. Pretty strange message to send. Women under the Taliban face horrific oppression, but it's those who have escaped to under pressure for not being good enough at football to deserve it. Then there's this effort from the BBC to get the Home Office to do something about the alleged fudged credentials. A Home Office spokesman says, We worked with a number of organisations who identified and referred the group to us, undertaking security checks as part of the process. Should there be evidence that the information provided was incorrect, the Home Office will investigate. I'm reminded of a phrase from my childhood, snitches get stitches. What's the desired outcome here? Deportation? And why is the framing of the story focusing on refugees who fled and not the disastrous evacuation process in 2021 that was responsible for leaving so many people behind, nor the continuing failure of the UK government to provide the long-promised safe routes out of Afghanistan for women and other minoritised groups who face a particular threat? 
A reminder, the government's current two resettlement schemes for Afghan citizens have been condemned for, quote, not functioning properly by human rights groups. In February 2023, it was revealed just 22 Afghans have been resettled using one route via the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme, which has capacity for 20,000 people to find refuge in the UK. And these failures have forced Afghans to turn to much more dangerous routes to asylum. Afghan nationals now make up the largest group arriving via small boats across the channel. Previously, it was Albanians. But sure, we should be outraged at the audacity of some Afghan women for allegedly falsifying what football division they played in. Sean, what does this framing of this story reveal about the BBC's instinctual institutional political approach? I think it actually uh, is an extension of the conversation that's been happening in the past week about the BBC's political stance and its obsession with, well, its belief in its own purported impartiality. And the reality is in trying to maintain impartiality, uh, I think the BBC needs to be checking for its own implicit biases. And one of the things that um, a way that bias, I think, can manifest as his as has happened here is of what is of public interest. And here it's sort of been decided that what is of supreme public interest is the possibility that there are um, some women that have fled Afghanistan, have fled the Taliban, you know, terrible oppression, who potentially weren't eligible under the rules in which they, um, you know, managed to escape rather than the failure and then to include the voices of uh, women who feel they've been left behind, which, are, you know, it's a very valid anger and resentment, but very much, I guess, guiding um, BBC readers towards placing that resentment with the women that have escaped rather than a complete lack of appropriate apparatus for greater numbers of women to be offered um, asylum, refuge, um, a route out of Afghanistan. What does it tell us about the way the UK as a whole sees refugees, particularly the word hierarchical comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. Hierarchical. But also, I think I think one of the real problem sicknesses that we are having in our sort of political media climate in the UK right now is, yes, a hierarchy, but also, I don't know, this obsession with the idea of fairness and uh, and encouraging the public to feel anger towards people who have in some way um, seem to behave in a way that sort of breaks arbitrary rules of fairness and, and forgetting constantly the idea that people move, people migrate, people claim asylum and um, refuge, safe refuge as a very human instinct when they are in danger, when their lives are in danger, as women's lives are under the rule of the Taliban. And I think where what it shows is that we are so unwilling to um, consider our responsibility to create empathy and understanding for the fact that all of us would do, you know, any woman, any minority would do what these women have done in terms of trying to flee persecution. Yes, it's a truly perplexing framing on my part, especially given when you the story is right there in front of you. There was a massive failure to organise any sort of escape route at the time. We left thousands of people behind who'd worked actively with the British forces and are now in grave danger. But the focus instead is on this tiny scoop that some people may have accidentally even um, been evacuated under the fact that they played in a different football division. It's just bizarre. And it really says to me about BBC impartiality and how far 
it's moved into this institutional groupthink that is still masquerading as balance. It's, and I, I think this story is going to run on and on and on because the BBC is not actually making any sort of changes to the way it operates. And we're seeing at the very top of the tree, it is moving ever closer with ties to the government. So it's automatically going to start reflecting the government. The BBC is now closer to the Conservative government than it has been since the 1920s when you look at the top brass. For our next story... Train workers are once again going on strike. It's a situation which is inconvenient for commuters and frankly terrifying for the country's news anchors. This was Jane Seckler having a go at grilling Mick Lynch on Sky. There are others who will say that actually because of the number of strike days, they are now considering different ways of working and ways that have worked around since COVID. People are much happier now working from home, absolutely, you know, for, for a lot of the time. And some would argue that you're actually striking your, your own way out of a job because you're going to contribute to, to the railways becoming less popular, less reliable. People are going to stop relying on the railways. Well, I don't think that's true. That's a government line that you're punting out on their behalf. Well, that's the sort of stuff they come out with. Excuse the railways, me, you don't know. The railways are excuse making, me, I'm talking to you about conversations I've had. Profit. Please, I'm not going to have you stand there yeah. and accuse me of being a government mouthpiece. I'm a, I'm a human being, I'm a middle-aged woman, it's, it's, and I'm a journalist. And I'm talking to you about like, conversations I've had with people exactly. I know. This has got nothing to do with the government. It's exactly the phraseology that I hear across the table from government ministers, almost verbatim. So there you go. Maybe you're just very in tune with what they say. So what I'm we've got is return to the railway. We've got... We, OK, well, fine. Maybe they're in tune with the government as well. I'm a middle-aged woman. I'm a human being. I'm a bitch. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I'm a mother. I think they quite enjoy it, you know. I think they quite like having Mick Lynch on. It really brightens up the day, doesn't it? Um, Mick also spoke to Stig Abel on Times Radio. Are you trying to hold back the dam here, Mick Lynch? Because there will be job losses in any industry that go, undergoes modernisation. There will be a time when booking, booking offices are used less, where people uh, just uh, have a different interaction with the train service. And that will mean, in some areas, more automation, fewer jobs. And that's just reality. It's a sad reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. And you can't hold back that, however hard you try well, we understand the realities of the railway industry and modern society. We, we live in it and we work in the railway industry. If you go to many ticket offices around the country, they're packed, they're, they're queued out. And what the, what the companies want to do is cut back and dehumanise our railway, de-staff it in many occasions, so that it's difficult for people with uh, disabilities and accessibility problems to access our system. And they want to do that in the name of the profits that they're making, that they continue to make during the pandemic. They could run fully, a fully accessible railway with ticket offices and continue to make their profits as they do today. Since the pandemic, they've made over £400 million in profit, but they want our members to pay for any increase through these changes of conditions. So our members can and do adapt to changes in technology, changes in travelling habits and changes in, in purchasing habits. But what they want to do is strip down the fare system so that they can extort even more money from the travelling public and not give the public a square deal in terms of the fare levels, which we've seen continue to rise despite these profits that these train operators are making. So it's not only our members that need a square deal, it's the travelling public who have been ripped off for the last 25 years or so through privatisation, while tens of billions of pounds have been taken out of our system and delivered direct to these shareholders in these companies. Sean. Who came out on top in these clips and why? 
I mean, I'm going to say Mick Lynch did. The reason being, I think, you know, what I what I like about him, what I think many people find satisfying about him, I have to say, um, as someone that has worked in media myself, is the lack of deference that we see across political med- news media in this country, um, this kind of uh, constant tyranny of civility. And in fact, he is very polite. But what is interesting is that because he refuses to be, um, I don't know, to, to yield ground and to, to play ball in the way they want, what is interesting is how he's constantly treated as if he's uncivil. So to say I'm a human being when he hasn't in fact said anything that has uh, degraded or called into question her humanity, I think um, I think it shows a real sign of the fragility that we're dealing with often in uh, these liberal media spaces in which politeness, deference uh, in the face of often complete misinformation or, uh, uh, yeah, repetition of of conservative government lines is is expected. And if you fall outside of that, and he's just not from that world, and I think it's very satisfying for a lot of people who, um, who, who look on and see almost a kind of deranged chorus at the heart of our political media to see at least a dissenter, yeah. So for our next story, what happens when you make a whole career for yourself by scaremongering about woke culture, but you don't know what woke means? Well, this happens. Only 7% of Americans consider themselves very liberal and probably fewer of them consider themselves to be woke. And so, you know, when, when well, we talk about What does that mean to you? Re- could, could, would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple of times and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that... Um, I... This is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define, and we've spent an entire chapter defining it. It is sort of the understanding that we need to totally reimagine and redo society in order to create hierarchies of oppression. Um, Sorry, it's it's hard to explain in a 15-second soundbite. Yeah, look, your time. That makes me feel so much better about my most embarrassing on-screen moments. And she was right. It's had 10 million views, so it has indeed gone viral. And here we are talking about it a little bit more. Let's get the background here. So that was Bethany Mandel being interviewed by Brianna Joy Gray on The Rising. Now, Bethany Mandel is a conservative commentator and the author of this book, Stolen Youth. How radicals are erasing innocence and indoctrinating a generation. Quite snappy. This is how the book is described on Amazon. The left is waging an all-out battle on the American family, particularly the youngest members. If they can make our children miserable, lead them to question every building block of society and rebuild their entire concept of reality, then the left and their woke indoctrinators will consider that a victory. But we can't let them win. As concerned parents and American citizens, we have to understand what's truly going on before we can do something about it. Stolen Youth provides an urgent deep dive into issues surrounding the current woke indoctrination happening in politics, education, medicine, mental health, entertainment and culture. These issues may seem subtle, insidious and hard to make sense of, but armed with the information provided in this book, we now have a framework from which to fight. While we may simply be trying to parent our children well and create a happy, healthy and happy home environment, this is no longer enough. 
We must now go on the offence to protect our kids, and this book sheds a bright light on the reason why. We can no longer afford to stay ignorant. Our children's lives and the survival of our families are at stake. Wow, heavy stuff. Mandel also edits the children's book series Heroes of Liberty. It's made up of biographies of right-wing cultural and political figures marketed to conservative families, and I imagine is a very big moneymaker. The books in this series avoid mention of issues that could cause discomfort to conservative parents, such as LGBTQ identities or the out-of-wedlock birth of American founding father Alexander Hamilton. Sean. Why is someone like Bethany Mendel, a right-wing conservative commentator who's made her career on talking about wokeness, finding it so hard to define what woke actually means? Because woke is not, um, in ever has never intended by the right to be a substantive concept. In fact, woke is more like an ellipsis, right? It's, it is a deliberate vacuum into which anything can be projected. That is its function. So um, it's kind of essentially a right-wing fascistic version of something like the zeitgeist, right? Is it something that it appeals to people's emotions and fears and anxieties? And into that, anything can be projected about work, whether that's LGBTQ rights, whether that's racial justice, whether that's feminism. Woke is like deliberately a, a hold all for all of these things. So of course it can't be defined. It doesn't mean anything. So actually she's very much providing us. When she went silent and was like, uh, 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 she's providing us with the real definition of woke. It is a stand-in for, um, yeah, for various right-wing anxieties that it plays on with the public. And I think it's worth saying that whilst it is like a funny viral moment, I am increasingly, as much as, you know, we we point out these things in the right, I think it's really important for um, those of us on the left and with progressive politics, not just to be like our sort of liberal counterparts sort of lolling along, being like, well, this is stupid, because actually in many ways, the vapidity is the point. And we're not going to win by just pointing out the fact that they can't define the word woke. The word woke appeals to emotions. It appeals to something that is not necessarily um, easily articulated. And I actually have always believed that what we need to do rather than debunking is to um, be able to appeal to people's emotions uh, in the same way, but with the actual substance of the fact that we're not creating a, a, a ton of scapegoats. In fact, what people's fears and anxieties are. The left has to come up with answers that appeal to people's emotions. And that can sometimes be a little bit of a controversial suggestion. But I do think um, it's something that we don't necessarily always consider on our strategies. And we're very quick to debunk and point out inconsistencies. I was thinking of um, some of the viral clips I've also seen in recent weeks about the drag bans in the US and pointing out the contradiction that Republicans want to ban drag, but then don't support gun control and in fact want the proliferation of guns. And yes, that's very true, but the they don't care about the contradictions. They don't care. Um, and we're not going to win by pointing out the fact that there's contradictions. So I think with woke, we have to acknowledge that its power lies in the fact that it taps into fear and anxiety, and we need to tap into less destructive emotions. I really wanted to pick up on that because I think it is an excellent point and something I also think about too, for all the joy I have in watching a clip like that and watching Bethany Mandel squirm. Why are the left not as good as our, or why have the left not matched the right when it comes to articulating these emotions? We have this emotive narrative we could be picking up on. There is optimism, positivity. You know, we could be building this massive new thing. But why is that 
either not being sold as well or not being articulated as well when it comes to left-wing politics and the message we're trying to give people en masse. I think it's hard work. I think what what one of the strategies of the right is to deliberately embattle the left, right? So that you're always firefighting, you're always under siege, you're always having to deal with some nonsense. Uh, And that's why I think it is, you know, we have to pick our battles with that because sometimes, you know, there are plenty of studies around around the presidency of Donald Trump, right? There were loads of studies done that when you um, debunk um, political disinformation, and sometimes you entrench it in the public mindset, right? So you have to actually be very careful and strategic about when you restate the right arguments for them in order to debunk it. And I think what happens is that we are basically always, you know, shit is slung basically, and we're having to like firefight. And what we need to focus on really are the fact that, yeah, broad sweeping uh, narratives do have a place in left-wing politics. And we can't just smugly rely on the fact that because we're often right and because the evidence shows that we are often, you know, the policies that the left is proposing are popular, they would improve people's lives. Like all of that stuff, the evidence is on our side, I believe. Um, we can't just rely on that because actually emotions, big ideas, grand sweeping um, ideas about how society should be, they will always cut through and and manage to, I, I guess, um, yeah, enter, enter the emotional worlds of some people much more quickly than a load of infographics and um, charts and, and debunking um, guides. I think it's very pertinent. There was a good example of sort of how left-wing populism might be able to operate in John Fetterman, who won in Pennsylvania and is now serving as the junior senator for that state. There is a really interesting episode looking at his campaign on a podcast called Know Your Enemy and how they harnessed sort of right-wing methods of populism and turned them into positive left-wing empowerment. Um, So thank you so much, Sean for joining me tonight to celebrate my ent- entering my 28th year. Do you enter your 28th year or do you enter your 29th year when you go to you're 28? Entering, you're entering your 29th year. Good for you. Year. Some of us are I'm- in our 30s. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and thank you everyone at home for watching this evening and spending this time with us. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. And I'm hearing reports. The dream team of Michael Walker and Aaron Bastani will be discussing the latest Labour Files revelations involving Martin Ford. You have been put on notice. For now, though, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.